Now is the time to reinforce your bowling arsenal, and BowlerX.com is the online leader in price, service, and selection, with free insured shipping on every item we carry, including a complete line of Pro Shop supplies, as well as balls, bags, shoes, accessories, and more. Also, check out the large selection of closeout and discontinued items at a fraction of their original cost. BowlerX.com, your online bowling superstore and proud sponsor of Above180.com. You can hear Above 180 on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and beyond, on demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. BowlerX.com, your online bowling equipment superstore, presents the Above180.com podcast. Tim Berg and Joey Serrar are ready to hit the lanes, approaching the issues that you, the bowler, want to know. From the latest equipment reviews, coaching, to drilling layouts, and the stars of the PBA. Now, from Washington, D.C., and the Bowler's Pro Shop in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, here are your hosts, Tim Berg and Joey Serrar. Well, this is part two of the interview I started last week with Jeff Riggles, Chuck Gardner, and Mike Shady. I'd like to invite you to take a listen to part one. If you missed it, we go over all sorts of things, including the PBA and the dyed oil, to how to get more young people involved in working in our sport that we all love. But, gentlemen, I want to thank you for hanging with me, and let's have some fun. All right. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, we left off, and we were talking about what we can do, what folks need to do to help people in our industry. So I thought, let's let's talk a little bit, and let's dive into the USBC, because, it, you know, the USBC these days, they just started this program now where they're offering the short season leagues. And I want to see if you guys think that is something that is going to attract bowlers and what you guys are hearing on the ground floor from folks down there. Is that something that you think bowlers, the seasons are too long these days? We need the short season leagues? I, I guess I'll start, uh, Tim. I, I, I think it's absolutely mandatory. It's essential if this game is going to survive to go short season. You know, we, we just got done talking in our last show about how 95% of the audience is kind of neglected uh, in this sport. Uh, and that is, that's the bowler who, who we need to try to evolve uh, to keep this sport uh, alive and, and get it uh, growing again. I, I just think if we can spend more time with that bowler, and then uh, as they become more motivated, more educated, uh, and, and start enjoying the, the sport and developing a passion for it, uh, that's where we start kind of channeling them into the short season leagues. The, as, you know, as little as eight weeks, uh, you know, we've got a competitive league uh, why don't you try it and and again uh, continue to develop that player continue to instill passion into that bowler and then we we can uh, you can go to the next tier maybe a 16 or even the traditional 32 week uh, once they really develop that passion but you know with, with what we got now obviously the model is isn't working it's 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 outdated uh, the culture um, does not support anything with that kind of commitment uh, with other sports and other uh, recreation and entertainment uh, venues, I just think it's mandatory and it's essential uh, if this sport has any chance uh, that proprietors uh, uh, need to realize that that short season leagues uh, it, it's got to be a thing of of today. Yeah, I would I, agree. 100%. If you want to go first, Chuck, <laughs> I'll go right ahead. I, I would agree 100. percent If you you can't win a customer for you know for long for for long life unless you get them in the door to, for the short term and 
I mean, anything that gets somebody in the door and exposes them to your product, then you've made a huge victory right there, and all you got to do then is deliver a product that they like. And if you do that, then they're going to want to come back either for another 12-season or 12-week season or for maybe, like Shade said, a, a longer one. And every proprietor I talk to up here is a pretty progressive area in Madison. Lots of short-season leagues have a ball leagues. Uh, they're all over the place, and obviously proprietors rather have – 30 some weeks but you know that's just not how the world works these days and and you gotta gotta accept that maybe you get two tw- two 12s is just as good almost as one thirty week the, the other thing that we have to look at and, and i think we we neglect this a lot in our industry is are we delivering a good product and 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 i think you know the traditional you know you make phone calls in july for your leagues to start in late August, or early September, and you floor your leagues, and then you try a little short season league in, in January for, for eight weeks, and you you floor a few people there, and then your leagues are getting ready to end. You start making some phone calls for your summer leagues. I think we we became a little lazy as an industry that we only wanted to work on building leagues three times a year, and the January leagues were always kind of half-hearted because they were such short-term leagues that we didn't put as much into it. And and let's be honest, society has changed so much. What we what we have access to, we can we can watch the NFL on our cell phones. We can there's so much technology, there's so many things that we can do that, that occupy our time that are we delivering a great product by having people come into our centers that may not be exactly what we envision them to be as far as you know, are they up to date? Do they do they give you that feel of comfort? Do they are they exciting to be in? Um, we show up to league and you put some money in an envelope, and you're not interacting with anybody but the person that you're bowling against, and usually they want to beat you. And you know, are we delivering a really good product? And and I think there's got to be some social social changes to how we structure leagues uh, long term. To, to get people more involved in wanting to be part of it. Um, you know, this isn't the 50s anymore. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was a little boy and my mom and dad bowled league, and, you know, they couldn't wait to get to league every week, and I would go there and, uh, you know, I'd run around in my little walking thing, and all I wanted to do is someday be big enough to go bowl. And, and you know, that's that's what we grew up around. But... You know things have changed so much, and we really haven't evolved as an industry um, in in the league aspect, or even in the entertainment aspect, as we should have, in my opinion. And I don't know all the answers. I can tell you, you guys know I'm very vocal. If I knew the answers, I would stand on top of the mountain screaming them. <laughs> but I do know, but I do know what we're doing isn't working. So I think along with changing, you know, the short season leagues. You know, I think the ball thing is kind of come and gone. You know, how many times are they going to bowl for eight weeks for a for a T zone? Um, I, I think that's kind of come and gone, and, and it's not really that big a deal anymore. But I think there are some things that can be done, and, and I just think we need to have some creative, out of the box thinking people help us figure out what people really desire and want. I know one of the things that a lot of people do up here in the Medford area is during the summer they run the short season leagues, and at the end of the year, you, it, they're called Reno leagues. So at the end of the year, 
you go down the Reno, and that's where they pay out your prize fund. They actually even pay you out in chips, so they're they're geared towards adults, obviously. But they pay you out in chips with the work with one of the casinos down there and everything. But they fill up, and they run them every night of the week. But do you think that same bowling center would do that during the fall when I just finished up bowling last night and half the house was empty for our, for our league? Um, and the other thought, I guess, is we were talking – we alluded to team bowling in our last show regarding the PBA. Now, team bowling, we've always been the traditional five-person teams. Do you think is that, that seems to be a thing of the past, too? Then I think we've got to start exploring with three-person. I know when, in Milwaukee there's a great league, a singles league, 64-person singles league. Is that stuff we need to start exploring, too? Because we need to be changing, like you guys are saying. Well, I, I mean, I've, I've actually bowled personally in, in cruise leagues. Um, I've, I've bowled in some of those non-traditional leagues, and, and they're fun. You know, they, they had the, the leagues where you go to a, even to a NASCAR race, and they have, there's all kinds of things, but I, I agree with you. I think the traditional five-man league um, that, that takes a long time, I, I, you know, we're a society that kind of wants things now and to tie up from 6.15 until 9.15 to go bowl three games, that's a long time. And to, to be in a – and not being doing anything except for throwing the ball down the lane. Unless you're a competitive bowler or someone who's really geared to want to get better as a bowler or you, you're bowling for prize money that really matters to you, that doesn't interest you. So there, there just has to be things that interest people. Um, I know some of the bulk, some of the uh, large uh, center operators have tried things like you know iPad leagues and and things like that. And I, I, from what I hear, they've been somewhat successful. I just think there just needs to be more out of the box thinking as far as the structure of leagues, how we run them, and what we're what they're bowling for. And uh, you know, I, I just think it's important. I think if even if it's just a social aspect, uh, there, there's a league in, uh, in the Charlotte area that's for, geared completely for singles, um, people that are not married, you know, and I don't know if that's good or bad. I, I don't know, but they seem like the league does fairly well. It's, it's full, and, you know, people meet other people, and maybe that's a good thing. I, maybe there's, uh, you know, leagues that there just seems like there's some social aspects that we're missing, uh, that people show up for league, and, they order a hot dog from the snack bar, and they they drink three beers, and and they and they leave, and you know they just didn't really enjoy it as much as they used to. Yeah, I I totally agree with Chuck. I, I just think if you look at our society today, it's all about time management. It's the entertainment is quick, it's burst, it's it's uh, it's here and it's over. Uh, football's the most popular sport in this country because it's fast. It's there's always something going on. People enjoy that. Baseball's on the other end of the spectrum. It's slow. You look at the audience, the demographics almost match up with bowling. Uh, the kids really aren't into it unless they play it. Uh, I, I just think short season, I think something that's uh, fast-paced, accelerated, I think that's, those, that's, that's where you've got to kind of throw the ideas and hope one of them sticks. Yeah, and I think you're going to see changes come from leagues and, and move into tournaments, and you touched on it, Tim, right at the start with three and four. I see a day where um, 
possibly the Open Championships will be the last place left where we'll be bowling five-man team. And just the power of the tradition of it will keep it going a lot longer than it's elsewhere. And I know some city tournaments, and I believe some state tournaments, have already gone to four-man. Logistically, it's just easier to get uh, four guys together and not have to search for a cross team or an extra doubles guy or or whatever the case may be, and I just see that happening, and, and it's been talked about in our local city tournament a little bit. wouldn't surprise me if it happens, and I know USBC has the number one is the tradition and for the Open Championships, and number two is they fear that four-man teams means uh, 20% of their bowlers are suddenly out, and most of those 20% may not come back if they may not take the energy to get another team. So uh, that's those are the two big things against it, but... Uh, um, I, I see a day where we're just on the ease of it and, and just wholly moving to smaller numbers, it, it's going to happen. So, Jeff, speaking of seeing and foreseeing in the future, what are your thoughts on sanctioning? Uh, because that's one thing that I think there's kind of this disconnect. And is the USBC doing a good enough job to communicate why sanctioning is needed and why it's necessary and where your actual money goes. Because I think a lot of times it's like taxes. People think they, they pay their taxes. They don't necessarily like paying their taxes, but they at least see what it goes towards. Whereas you're sanctioning, you know, the USBC, they, and not to bash on them, but they took away some of the awards that some of the, the more recreational types liked. And I think there needs to be something, though, that shows where your sanctioning dollars go. Well, yeah, I, I look at it from a totally different point of view. I think the whole system needs to be completely redone. I had uh, Stu Upson when I was at the, the year that I went in the Hall of Fame. He gave a, a speech at the convention like he does every year, and I sat there listening, and he was talking about that basically USBC has identified that there's almost 10 million bowlers still out there that are in some sort of what you might call a league not necessarily an organized league, but they get together on a regular basis with the same group of people every week or two weeks or once a month in an organized way. Obviously, 80% of them, if that's the case, aren't sanctioned. Um, And I just think that the way to go about this is to completely blow up the current model. USBC and BPA got to get together uh, on a basis way more than they are right now, um, and no one ever pays a sanctioning fee again. Um, what happens is every time I bowl in my league session, a small percentage of my fee goes through the house back to USBC for certification. And every time I bowl a tournament, a little bit goes the same way. That way, the people that use the most services from USBC, guys like me and Shades, we pay the most, which I think is the way it should be. And maybe you find a way to fashion rewards to those people, too, for, for their loyalty and business. But, but then you don't have this, well, i got to fork out, $20 or $30 or $15 or whatever it might be at the start of every year. It's a seamless thing where no one sees it, and every league and every bowler is certified. Uh, USBC gets more money that way. Bowlers probably have to end up paying less accordingly because every bowler is covered, and the biggest thing that requires is the proprietors to agree to do this and you know a system to be developed and, and USBC and BTA to get together. But to me, I, obviously I must be missing something easy or this would have been done or something obvious that doesn't work right. But to me, this just seems so obvious that this is the way it should be. i I, I got to be missing something. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Jeff. Uh, the, the model he described, just described, is, is uh, seems like it, it would work. I think the only problem with that model is the logistics. It, it's just the added work, the added resources you need to collect the money. I think if they can figure that out, I think it's a pretty easy sell because, uh, like Jeff said, I, 
I, I hear every time I'm I'm in league, the beginning of league uh, each season is why are we paying a sanction and where's the value that we're we're getting for this sanction fee and and that's a big problem for bowlers and there's many many leagues uh, and Erie's still a very strong bowling community. Um, there's leagues that just don't sanction because of that. They don't see the value. And that problem is only going to get bigger because the awards are going away. More people are going to be upset. More people are not going to want to certify. USBC is not very good. I've criticized them in the past for this. They're not very good at telling their story. They're very fearful group in a lot of ways about being transparent and making their case. They're very cautious PR-wise, and it costs them a lot. I've told some of the executives that work there that I disagree 100% with how they handle that sort of thing, and they should be way more aggressive in telling their story, and I don't think they do a good job there. But the bottom line is if they wouldn't need to tell that story so much, they wouldn't have the ill feelings if people didn't even really see sanctioning fees happening. And they just need to convince the BPA that you got to we've got to get together and make this system, and we'll all benefit from this. And, you know, maybe BPA then and USBC are also with this money, they can get another a good rewards program. If all these bowlers are being covered in a way, then you can create a bigger rewards program that both entities are, are putting out. Maybe it's distributed by the proprietors. And, and I, to me, it's just, I don't know, it just makes so much sense that, I, I just, that it's not done. I have to be missing something. And I just think there's software. There's so much computer stuff these days. Somebody can make a system that you can handle it. Chuck, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, um, yeah, I do. I, I, I love the idea. That is a, that's, uh, honestly, it's the first time I've ever heard of that, and that is just fantastic. I mean, there, there could even, you could even tie in a way to help the PBA through that type of program where every single bowler and every single proprietor in the world would benefit if we had a viable professional bowlers tour uh, that every kid that wanted to go and, and, and bowl in the junior program, their, their goals and aspirations were be, to be on the Pro Bowlers Tour like Mike Shady and Jeff Riggles and Chuck Gardner were when we were kids. Um, you know, we, we went to junior league to get better. We wanted to get better. We wanted to go on tour someday because this was, it was an actually a viable way to make a living back then. And, uh, you know, anything that we could do to help support bowling and, and getting it to be seamless like that, where the, where each bowler is, is, you know, they're paying their, their league fees and, and a, a small piece of that goes back to the organizations to be distributed, you know, in a, in a manner to help bowling and help subsidize the, the sanctioning of, of events. I mean, I, I think it's a wonderful idea. I think it's fantastic. Keeping on the subject of the USBC, as the calendar strikes 2014, many of us start thinking about the USBC Open, which again is being held in Reno. Now, there's been, again, discussions regarding the eligibility requirements, and there's been some more changes made to, to the eligibility. And I, I've kind of been of the, the idea and the mindset that it's the Open Championships. If you're a USBC-sanctioned member, you should be allowed to bowl, and in good standing, obviously. Now, the USBC feels different about that. So what do you guys think of the fact that now the top 50 members of the uh, you know, 2012-2013 points list of the PBA are not eligible to bowl the USBC Open Championships. Jeff, you can start that. 
<laughs> well, I've written this a couple of times as the rules have changed over the years, and and I've also written that if if it had been a truly open championships through the years, you know, I, Shades and I might not have any Eagles. Who knows? But but that would be a, a fair trade off. I mean, let's just look at the history. But up until the PBA was formed, the Budweisers bowled together. You know, the Detroit, the Strohs, and whatever beer company they had, the Falstaffs. All the best bowlers bowled in the tournament, and all of a sudden you had a PBA, and all of a sudden Dick Weber and Don Carter and all those guys, well, they couldn't bowl anymore. That made no sense to me. They were bowling for a living in the 50s in some form or another, just like they were when the PBA came along. And if you pay dues to the USBC, you should be able to bowl in the USBC Open Championships. That's period. That should be, and I, I probably would have lost more over the years than just about anybody you could think of if those guys had all been able to bowl. But, but it's just to me, it's the simple principle again. And and I and I know they were afraid of scaring away a lot of bowlers, but let's just the easy rule to structure. If you got Sean Rash or Pete Weber or Wes Malott or Chris Barnes, you get him. He's the only guy that can be on a team. No other PBA members, and I've written it out. I won't explain it all here, but but you basically make categories of bowlers like they had at the end of the World Team Challenge, and the the, the best guys on tour with the best records based on their performance, not how many tournaments they bowl, based on their performance, titles and that sort of thing, are in one category along with international team members um, probably would be in that category. Then you've got your regional players, your senior players, then you've got your, you know, your your every other bowler. So you maybe make three or maybe even four categories, and you, you structure how teams can be in that. And and I've laid all that that stuff out. And that's another one where USBC's been kind of timid. And I just wish after the classic division had gone away in in '79 or '80 or '81, whatever it was, then that they had the gumption to step up and say, this is the right thing to do. These guys deserve to bowl. They're paying USBC dues, and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, I, I agree with Jeff. Just kind of piggyback on that. You know, on a selfish point of view, I'm I'm just like Jeff. Is you know, if these guys were allowed to bolt, it would be much more difficult for guys like Jeff and myself uh, to compete at that high level because we just we just don't bowl as much as as they bowl. Uh, on the other hand, is they should have the right to bowl because you know they're also members. Um, I guess the first thing I would do is is uh, if the P, if the uh, USBC is afraid they're going to lose teams, uh, they're going to chase some of these other teams away if they open it up. Is they all have our emails today? Is send a survey out, and, and they may have done that already. I don't know, but and see what the results are, and see what the the, the membership is saying. Would the membership uh, invite these players in? I don't know, but that's that's how I would make the decision whether or not to, to open up the eligibility. Chuck, what do your guys from Brunswick tell you when, when you guys are sitting around over a cold one talking about this? Because you go through, and, and I see I see their point when you a little bit when you, when you see it to a certain point. But once you get, say, the top, even when you look at the earnings of some of the people in the top 50, and like, like Jeff was alluding to, it's people that have bowled a lot of tournaments. It's, it doesn't necessarily mean they've, they've won, and it's the top 50 stars of, of the PBA, but... I tell you, there's some guys, it, it's very discouraging to me to take a look and say, wow, this guy can't bowl this year. This guy can't bowl because he's you know, 34th on the, on the money list. Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you this, that there's some guys that are in the top 50. This may not be very popular, but there's some guys in the top 50 uh, because they bowl every week and they bowl every event um, that I would take Jeff Riggles or Mike Shady against you know, pretty much day in and day out. Um, and, and I'm not trying to be 
discredit them in any way. They're they're good bowlers, but you know it, I think I think it's a silly rule. Um, I, I don't I don't doesn't make any sense to me. And and I, and I I've seen the way Jeff has put it into his uh, into his blog into his story, and, and and to me it makes perfect sense to have the the categories and. And if you if you build a team around those categories, you should be eligible to bowl. I mean, I I, I can tell you that the year that uh, that we finished second at the USBCs, um, you know there there was all kinds of issues about you know possible eligibility and possible this and possible that and you know bowling unopposed and just all kinds of things that came up. And and you know. Brian Smith is one of my very good friends. I love Brian to death, and, and he was on the team that ended up beating us, uh, you know, with a couple weeks to go. And and uh, you know, he's a he's a Masters champion, so you know, Brian Smith shouldn't be allowed to bowl. I mean, it, you know, I could very easily say, well, you know, geez, man, keep those guys out. I'd, I'd have I'd have two eagles, you know. Gosh darn, you know, that'd be so neat. But uh, at the end of the day, I think they had every right to bowl, and uh, and I, I I think that personally, I think the tournament is better with those guys bowling. I just think it's a better event. But, well, it uh, makes it more meaningful to win for sure. I, I'd agree. Absolutely. With if I could have won one of my eagles, knowing that every one of those guys was in there and we beat them, either you know, one of the team ones or individually, how much more meaningful would that have been? I mean, one of those would have been the same value as the five I have practically to, when you think about it and really just be logical about it. And, and the other thing to add to this is that we're, the USBC is already obviously going, going to be faced with having to change the rule again and figure something out. And they might kind of be forced into my sort of idea because if there's no tour events from, uh, the Masters in February until the World Series in in October, November, if their summer swing doesn't come off. I mean, there's going to be so few events out there that, you know, they can still do it off the, the points list and that, but at some point, these guys are, are they really, I guess they're still bowling for a living for going overseas and stuff, but they're going to have to do something again with the rule, um, I, I think, to, because, I mean, so you go bowl the World Series and a couple of majors, and if you bowl all those tournaments, which you might not, you might not make five thousand bucks, even if you're pretty good, or ten thousand, and you're going to be ineligible for the Open Championships. I mean, I, I, that's hard to conceive of in my mind. Especially when there's only you know a dozen, not even a dozen, at the most a dozen players that travel overseas and bowl those events. You know, it'd be very easy for a guy who had a fairly good World Series of bowling this year to finish in the top 50 for this entire season, um, even if he doesn't bowl well in, in the Masters um, or next year's World Series. You know, he could still finish in the top 50. And it's just, to me, you know, there, I, I don't know. I'm not looking at the money list right now, but I would have to guess a guy in the top 50 in, in uh, points. There's probably a guy in the top 50 in points that didn't make – Forty thousand dollars. As a matter yeah. of fact, I I I bet on that. <laughs> so so this guy made forty thousand dollars bowling, and he can't go bowl the USBCs where you know a guy who bowls three times a year like myself uh, goes there and makes a few thousand dollars every year. 
um, it doesn't make sense to me that those guys are, you know, that bowl don't, don't have an opportunity to go bowl. I mean, it, it just, it just doesn't add up. Well, let's move along. Cause last week we just had the people bowling in Vegas, the team USA trials. And there was a lot of discussion again after the bowling be, regarding the fact of the selection process. So there's people that were, were kind of voicing their opinions. And again, this is all just for talk. It's not meant to be a necessarily, a, I, by the way, I hope when the USBC hears this, they're, it's not taken as bashing. These are all just ideas that were floating out there for folks. But there were a lot of people that were complaining and, and weren't very happy with the selection process stating that, you know, people didn't have to bowl and you could submit a resume, basically, and you could still be chosen for Team USA. There are some people that's and what do you guys think? Should you at least have to show up in Vegas and bowl the tournament? And, and even if you make it on your resume on what you've done in prior tournaments, you at least they'll put the effort in that the other 280 some bowlers put in out in Vegas last week. Well, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll, ahead, I'll start. I, I guess it, it depends on whether you classify uh, uh, team USA is truly amateurs or if you're going to mix like, like the other sports, which we have done uh, for some years now. Um, you know, if it's truly uh, Truly going to be a team USA and, and strictly amateurs. Obviously, you've got a qualifying um, a system that that everybody's got to go through. But once you start mixing in the guys that do it for a living, the professionals, um, do, do you do you mandate that they they uh, qualify? I don't know if that's fair. I, I think their their body of work over the year or over their career, uh, just like some of our other sports, uh, if they're still competing at that high level. I think that's where the selection process makes makes sense. I think uh, you know if if uh, you know some of those guys that have really having great careers or a great couple last years, if you you uh, make them uh, qualify like some of the amateurs, I think you're offending uh, you know what they do as as a professional athlete and what they do as a living. So I, I think I think it does make sense. But anytime you select uh, people outside just strictly raw scores in the qualifying system. Uh, you're going to have some critics. Well, now, my, my personal... Go ahead, Chuck. Go ahead. Well, my thoughts on this deal are, you know, are we trying to field the best team we can field to go compete against the other nations of the world? And if we're trying to field the best team we can field, there's no chance that a one-week event should determine all of that. Um, I mean... I don't think I don't think Mika has to bowl or Oscu has to bowl to make the finish team. I, and I, I know Jason Belmonte doesn't have to bowl to bowl on Team Australia, but they are the best bowlers in their countries. And I, I, I mean, should should the number of people be adjusted? Possibly, maybe. Um, you know, I, I saw some things that were really disturbing to me. Uh, people being critical about a person that didn't finish, that finished one spot out, and she didn't get didn't get chosen. But uh, Shannon O'Keefe and and uh, Stephanie Nation got chosen. Well, you know their their body of work has 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 given them that right, and all the years on the team, and all their successes on the team. They're they're part of the team already. Um, I just, I don't know how you separate that and, and how you make it more fair, but I think if we're going to field the best team we can field, 
and we're going to include professionals on it. And, and, and again, it goes, goes back to what Mike said. If, if we're going to include professionals in it, then you can't tell them they have to be there for this event because they could be gone somewhere else bowling an event. Um, you know, there was events going on overseas at the same time. Um, you know, Chris Barnes and, and Mike Fagan and a few of the other guys that bowled gave up going overseas to bowl to go bowl the event, and Chris Barnes went there for one reason, and he went to accom- and he accomplished what he wanted to do. He had never won the event. He wanted to win it. He wanted to be that guy uh, to represent at the uh, uh, the gold, the World Cup, and and the other things. So you're automatically, if you win the event, that's where you are. And he did it. And and kudos to Chris Barnes. He's an amazing bowler, one of the greatest talents that's ever held a ball. Um, but to tell these other guys they can't go make a living because uh, they have to go bowl this event, no matter who it is. I just, it just doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't make sense to me. Well, the, the problem here with this whole situation is that a lot of people don't understand why it is the way it is. And the thing that happened is when the, it started with the Dream Team in 1992, the Olympics finally accepted, they finally got with the 20th century then, and they said the Olympics is about the best athletes in the world competing. And they said, bring all your pros in from every country, which was mostly the U.S., and we know how successful the Dream Team was, and look at the growth of basketball around the world. And bowling at that time was not open on the, on the international level, the FIQ tournaments. Uh, heck, I got to be on the FIQ team, you know, and, and that would never happen today. Um, it, and through the process of going through the ABC tournament, all events, when the pros couldn't even bowl in that. And bowling finally got with the times because it wanted to get in the Olympics, and that's why things were opened up to the professionals. So... ABC or USBC has tried to craft a compromise here. They've tried to have some avenue for qualification to get on the team for guys who are not the best pros in the country, and yet they're also having selection processes so that the very best are going to be on the team so that when whoever's running the Olympics at any particular time looks at bowling and says, okay, I watched the pro tour and the best guy is Jason Belmonte and and Mika Koivinemi and Sean Rash and Pete Weber or whoever it is, and I don't see them on your teams representing your countries. So, you know, what's going on here? So this is a compromise that's imperfect and that satisfies no one 100%, but should be understood that this is how it is so everybody gets a little something. The uh, Rob Gotchels of the world, the college players, they have a chance to make the team when they bowl great, and that's happened many times. But the best guys you know, get chosen because they are the best bowlers. I mean, could you conceive of not letting Kobe Bryant have a spot on the U.S. basketball team all because he didn't want to go to the workouts or something like that? Come on. Let's be real about this. Ridiculous. I, I get so aggravated with the people complaining about this. And, and plus, the other thing everyone forgets is there was a summer team trials last July, and two of the people that weren't there that I saw some complaints about because they didn't bowl and were chosen to the team, Shannon O'Keefe and Stephanie, now Johnson, then Nation, both bowled in the summer trials. That was part of deciding the 2014 team. So not only do you have people complaining without understanding, you also have people complaining being ignorant. And I'm sorry I'm blunt, but I just have lived with this for the last two weeks, and I get very <laughs> aggravated about it. Good stuff. Well, yeah. it is frustrating. And, 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 you know, we had the other side of this last year, which I found really interesting, that some of the same people – that are complaining this year about the process 
and, and it's amazing that you know they, they are the ones that are the, the vocal minority are complaining about it again, but in a different complaint. Because last year there was a lot of complaints that Sean Rash, who was the player of the year, did not get chosen for the team. Now some of these same people are complaining that Sean Rash got chosen this year and he was arrogant for not going and bowling the event. And, you, you, I mean, how do you win when you're in that position? I feel, I feel bad for the, for the selection committee and all those folks that, you know, this, is, this has got to be very difficult for them. They're trying to field the best team they can, but they're trying to do it fairly. Um, but you can't field the best team for Team USA, in my opinion, if the best bowler in the USA for the last three years is not on the team. I mean, how do you? I mean, goodness gracious! This the guy is the defending player of the year. He's in the final three for player of the year again this year, and you know he might not have been on the team again. So, you know, it's just I don't know. It seems it seems like uh, going back to that you know the 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 loud minority. um, Some of them you just can't make happy. Well, I want to end our time together by by getting everyone's opinion on a company that just came into the bowling scene and really started being a major player in in the year 2013. And the company is called iGrind. They're a not-for-profit, and they've run some bowling tournaments. They sponsored a PBA regional. And, Jeff, you've covered them and a lot of the dealings and going on. They're Right now, they're, they're based in the Midwest in Chicago area. And, Jeff, you've covered a lot with them, and now they're trying to help and coordinate kind of a woman's tour uh, but Jeff, what are your thoughts, and where where do where do really do they go from here? Because I got to be honest, coming from the West Coast here, uh, they had the tournament out in Detroit where they were paying thirty thousand for first place, and I asked a couple people if they had heard of it, if they were going to it, and they looked at me like I had a third eye. So I mean, I think ultimately, I think if they if they really want to get moving and, and and succeed as more than just a regional area type tournament, I think they're going to have to to expand their message one, just a bit. Yeah, well, if those people would have read 11frame.com, they would have known about the tournament. Because <laughs> I did write a preview of it. But, you know, I, I mean, iGrind is, they're one of the groups I think, I, I always tell anybody that's going to run a tournament calls and ask me uh, any advice, I always say under-promise and over-deliver. And they people, some of the people think I'm too easy on them, some of the people think I've been way too hard on them. I've just tried to report the facts here, and the facts are that they have done some good stuff. They put on a couple of, well, sponsored a regional, and they put on the Detroit, and they put their money into it. But then they kind of, I think, with Grady at the helm, got a little carried away with ambitions and a little ahead of themselves um, with talking up what they were going to do with the women's tour. And 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 I think they would have been better to be a little more behind the scenes and, and build it up slowly, and then when they had everything solidly nailed, then come forward. And uh, Brian Gunn's kind of stepped forward now. He was always the CEO. He's kind of stepped forward now, and he's sort of taking the lead. And he's a little more in the under-promise. He's a PBA player, by the way, from Chicago and a pro shop owner. He's a little more in the under-promise, over-deliver mode. And hopefully they'll be able to get sponsors, be able to get these monthly women's tournaments going in some fashion or another. But, you know, I'm, I'm... not nothing against them whatsoever. This would apply to anything. I'm skeptical. I've become a real pessimist about bowling. Um, the PBA isn't able with an ESPN contract to get anything really that big. And if they do it, great. I'll be the one leading the cheers. 
but you know I, I'm just skeptical unfortunately in the state of our industry that anybody's going to be able to do this and if somebody comes along and has the magic wand well more power to them and I hope they hand it over to PBA then but uh, you know I, I, I'm just going to wait and see what happens yeah I, I agree with Jeff I, I think anytime you hear about somebody coming in and, and uh, promising some exciting things I think we're all, we all get excited because we've been waiting for something like that but I just uh, I always get cautious when I hear something like that. The, the PBA has had uh, some really smart, intelligent, experienced corporate people come in in the last ten years with tremendous networking around the world and in the sports industry, and have really hit dead ends um, and have uh, created a little bit of uh, excitement, but it, it's really never went to the next level and. To hear that, I I really hope it happens, and I think we all do, but I I think we should all be cautious. And Chuck, yeah, I'm, I'm on the same boat with those guys. I, you know, I I had a lot of personal conversations with them uh, when they first um, jumped into the scene, and they were gonna do some things with uh, hiring staff players and make them the highest paid players in the industry. And they were going to do a lot of things, this, that, and the other. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a guy that, you know, I'm old. Um, and, uh, I remember when Mike Shady was a young kid coming on tour. So I'm, I'm really old. Boy, Chad, um, you are old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I, we've seen these things before. Um, in our industry, the PBA has seen it. Uh, the players have seen it. The uh, our entire uh, our entire society has seen these types of things, and and I, I think we've been let down so many times that it's hard to stay excited about something. And and I, I and I love, you know, I, I really love what Jeff said, and it's something that my dad taught me when I was a youngster. Um, Whenever you're dealing in business or, or dealing with things that you're trying to do, always um, under-promise and over-deliver. It'll make you successful. And, and I think they went about that completely um, the opposite way. Um, they, they certainly over-promised, and in and, and, and honesty, uh, the, the Detroit tournament, they under-delivered uh, as far as the payout down the line and um, some other things. And... And I, and I think that they've they've t- sort of taken on the PBA in a in a not comfortable way. So I, I just think that you know we we should you know listen if, if they come up with something I'm going to support it. Um, I want to help. I'll, it's if it's got to do with our sport and and success and things getting better in our sport, I am going to be behind it 100. percent And uh, but I just and and I hope it happens. I hope they do some great things. I really do. Well, and on that note, gentlemen, this has just been a truly a treat. Thank you for spending some time with us, sharing all of your insights. I mean, between between you, between all of us here, there's probably there's probably a, a good number of years of bowling knowledge and and experience in the industry. And uh, want to thank you for for sharing some of your insights and kind of everyone providing a little bit of a different perspective on things from the you know the the ball rep with uh, with Brunswick and Chuck and Jeff being a writer now for over thirty years and Mike being a a coach and and uh, eagle winner as well and bowler so thank you guys for joining us and we are definitely going to do this uh, do this sort of format again as is um, very insightful yeah it was great do it again please it was fun. 
Yeah, I really we, enjoyed we, myself. And uh, Tim, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, same here, Tim. Uh, thanks for for the other two guys for when you suggested that I be on the show that they didn't, you know, pull out. So <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I appreciate the other guys sticking with it, even though I'm on. So thanks, thanks you all for uh, this is a great format.